Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On a Sunday in the 1980s, a young couple is having breakfast at the Fellowship of Friends compound in Oregon House, California. They aren't cult members, but the husband donated to the construction of the Fellowship's Goethe Academy a private art gallery and library. Since they're here, he figures they should see where his money went. They enter the gallery's central room in awe of the ornate craftsmanship. The husband wanders into the library to borrow some books. His wife isn't far behind. But they stop in the doorway. Before them, a huge television broadcasts a football game. Sitting on the couch is the teacher and six boys, draped across each other like lovers. The boys scatter as the teacher jumps to his feet and yells at the couple for trespassing. This image stays with the husband weeks later, when a fellowship student calls to canvas for donations. The husband refuses and explains why. After a moment of silence, the fellowship student thanks the husband for saying what others were afraid to say. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Today we continue our deep dive into the Fellowship of Friends, founded in 1970s California by Robert Earl Burton, the fourth grade school teacher turned Armageddon prophet. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. A lot of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we focused on the life of Robert Earl Burton, the youngest of four children. Burton was born in Arkansas in 1939. At the age of four, Burton's mother uprooted him and his siblings, moving to San Francisco, California. Burton later became an elementary school teacher, but was forced to resign due to allegations of inappropriate sexual behavior with male students. This set Burton on a search for enlightenment, leading him to cult leader Alexander Francis Horn, 
Horn introduced him to the spiritual belief system, the Fourth Way. But savage abuse would inspire Burton to leave Horn and start the Fellowship of Friends on January 1st, 1970. In this episode, we'll turn our spotlight to Burton's students. Who were they? And why does the Fellowship of Friends remain alive today despite lawsuits, tax evasion, accusations of child molestation, suicides, and Burton's empty promises? By July 1972, Burton was a far cry from his days as a part-time tennis instructor who lived with his mother. Now residing at a house in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, Burton bought himself a Cessna airplane, two Mercedes-Benz coupes, and a diamond ring, all at his students' expense. None of this was likely known to Barbara Bruno Lancaster, who was a 27-year-old with an interest in psychology and a desire to make a positive contribution to humanity. She happened upon the works of G.I. Gurdjieff and P.D. Ospensky, the founders of The Fourth Way, and knew that this would be her path to enlightenment. Lancaster sought a real fourth-way school with a teacher who could help her achieve a higher level of consciousness. When Lancaster found a bookmark in one of Gurdjieff and Ospensky's books, it put her on the path to the Fellowship of Friends. In 1972, Lancaster moved from her native Hawaii to the Fellowship of Friends house in Carmel-by-the-Sea to be closer to Burton. At this point, everyone called him the teacher. Daily activities were centered on relentless exposure to Burton's word. Through a variety of tasks, exercises, and suggestions, he arbitrarily assigned, changed, or withdrew. Tasks were the rules students had to follow. Exercises could be defined as what the students should do, like daily chores. Failure to do so resulted in a private or public reprimand, depending on the offense. Finally, Suggestions were what the students could do to show their devotion to the fellowship, almost like extra credit. Failure to perform any of these things well was punished with hefty fines and, in rare cases, excommunication. Lancaster and her fellow students removed certain words from their vernacular, didn't use contradictions or talk in the first person, They were taught to behave with the precision of machines, which meant they couldn't involuntarily move a single muscle. Something as mundane as crossing her legs had to be done with precision. The goal was to produce a heightened awareness. Specifically, Burton wanted his students to regard themselves with impartiality. Lancaster said, quote, There were times when I felt I was losing control of my mind, end quote. Her fellow students reassured her that this feeling was all part of the process. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to authors Flo Conway and Jim Siegelman, what Lancaster and her fellow students experienced was a phenomenon they call snapping, or a drastic personality change. The zeitgeist of the United States in the 1970s created the right conditions for Burton's students to snap. Lancaster and her fellow students were members of a generation in search of self-knowledge. According to Conway and Siegelman, an estimated three million young Americans had joined one of the thousand new cults and sects spreading throughout the country. A widespread existential crisis for post-World War II children in the United States. 
Dissatisfied after achieving the American dream, the search for meaning had led to a mass preoccupation with a variety of techniques to create a transcendental experience or enhance their consciousness. Burton's students sought this both from him and from each other. The longer Lancaster was isolated at the fellowship, the more her thinking devolved into black and white absolutes. Whatever Burton had approved was good. Whatever he rejected was evil. Though the tasks changed, the constant struggle for perfection remained consistent. Reservations plagued Lancaster. On the one hand, the fellowship provided her with a sense of community, purpose, and satisfaction. Her fellow students were a nice, inclusive bunch. Yet what she said, what she did, and even what she wore were constantly judged to determine whether she was good or bad. There were consequences for bad students who didn't appreciate the knowledge Burton offered. Lancaster recalled the fellowship held a special meeting to announce that Laura Fisher-Smith, a student who left the fellowship, had committed suicide. The reasons were unknown, but Burton used her death as an example. She was weak. Only the strong would succeed. To add to the pressure, Burton told his students there were 44 angels, though sometimes he called them sea influences or higher forces that watched what they did and could hear their thoughts. The Angels had purposefully selected the Fellowship students to reshape society after Armageddon. All outsiders would perish. Burton's first foray into Armageddon predictions started in 1971. He and an unnamed fellow student were cruising in a recently purchased Dodge Dart on Highway 1 near Carmel-by-the-Sea. A baseball game was on the radio. The odometer crossed 1,954 miles as they passed a mailbox with Thompson written on the side. Burton said that this was a sign from the higher forces. He told the student that in 1954, New York Giants player Bobby Thompson hit his famous shot-heard-round-the-world home run, which Burton reportedly heard over the radio. So when the odometer hit 1,954 miles at the exact moment they passed the last name Thompson and baseball was on the radio, it was a clear sign from someone. Unfortunately for Burton, Thompson actually hit his famous home run in 1951. Misinformation aside, Burton took this as a sign to pay attention to whatever happened next. 44 miles down the road, the odometer crossed 1,998 miles. They passed another mailbox. Instead of a name, this mailbox displayed the numbers 41211. This is how the higher forces told Burton that the state of California would crumble into the Pacific Ocean on April 12, 1998, at exactly 11 a.m. And so, his first prophecy was born. In the 1970s and 80s, the fear of Armageddon was at the forefront of the American zeitgeist. In 1982, the New Yorker published an article about the effects of an all-out nuclear war. Burton likely knew his students feared the end and could capitalize on it. He told them not to worry. Higher forces had explained that Armageddon would have three phases. First, the stock market would crash in 1984 which was the herald of a three-and-a-half-year economic depression. Newly unemployed students would flock to the Oregon House, bolstering their numbers. Then, California would crumble into the ocean in 1998. Finally, 
a nuclear holocaust would wipe out civilization, with the sole exception of the Fellowship of Friends in 2006. These angels spoke through Burton, who was gracious enough to relay the messages to his students. Anyone who didn't believe him was easily silenced. Burton told his followers that if they questioned him, it was proof they were low-level beings. So Lancaster kept her doubts a secret. She recalls, I began to think that I was constantly being watched and that even my thoughts were subject to judgment by these higher forces. Psychiatrist and author Dr. Robert J. Lifton describes this as the psychology of the pawn. As a pawn, Lancaster felt helpless. She could never measure up to the angel's expectations, a feeling that kept her tethered to Burton, who controlled his students with the threat of Armageddon. He was the only savior. They needed him. To drive the point home, Burton would travel in a 1974 Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow that cost $49,000 at the time, valued today at over $170,000. His license plate prominently displayed the word Oracle. Burton had his students construct an expansion of the Oregon House compound. This would be the ark that would save them from Armageddon. He also had side projects to keep his students busy. For more than 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week, students would clear acres of land, drill for water, and lay the foundation for Burton's passion project, the vineyards and a winery. It was expected that students would sacrifice their weekends and vacation days for the greater good of their ark. The excessive hours took a toll on the students. On January 2nd, 1975, two students were involved in a serious highway accident. The driver had fallen asleep at the wheel when their Volkswagen veered out of control and was crushed under a semi-truck trailer. Word of the accident spread through the fellowship, but as the students anxiously awaited the fate of their friends, Burton turned his thoughts toward damage control. It became clear that he did not care about the safety of his students, that he would put his own needs over their safety and well-being at any cost. But his students had no idea how far he would push them. We'll find out just how much Burton would demand in a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. 
Now, back to the story. On January 2nd, 1975, two exhausted fellowship students fell asleep while driving, and their car was crushed beneath a semi-truck. To the relief of the fellowship, the students escaped with their lives, albeit with severe physical trauma and injuries. Instead of lessening their workload, Burton forbid falling asleep while driving. Students who sat in the front seat were tasked with making sure their drivers stayed awake. Around this time, Burton decided to introduce the students to high society. The exercise would not only help them achieve higher consciousness through appreciation of fine arts, it was part of his larger plan to preserve culture in the aftermath of Armageddon. According to Lancaster, Burton seemed nostalgic for the 18th century, a statement supported by his expanding collection of early 18th and 19th century antiques, ornate French furniture, a crystal chandelier, a marble copy of the statue of the Apollo Belvedere, and other fineries. The purchases were all approved by the Fellowship's board of directors, a group initially founded to have the Fellowship officially classified as a church for tax-exempt status. Burton primarily used his directors to extort his students, though sometimes he took a more direct approach. December 18, 1978, was the start of what students called the Cameo Tuxedo Era. Burton entered a consignment agreement with local tuxedo rental shops for their cast-offs. The tuxedos were sent to Oregon House, where Burton resold them to his students. A complete tuxedo with a tie and studs was sold for around $44 at the time. Today, the price would be $174.67. Many of the tuxedos were out of style and tattered, which was likely why the rental shops were glad to get rid of them. The women didn't escape the formal wear rule either. They were required to wear fine dresses adorned with jewels. But of course, only three types of jewelry were permitted. Pearls, diamonds, and stones with bas-relief carvings called cameos. Burton reportedly made a deal with European jewelers to upsell the jewelry to his students for three times the price. He would later split the profits with the jewelers. Burton encouraged students to spend money on these things. This was in addition to the monthly donations, which were 10% of a student's gross salary, plus the ever-expanding number of special donations Burton habitually solicited. Many students either lived in trailers or overcrowded houses to be able to afford to live, given how much of their salary was being siphoned by the fellowship. Many fared far worse. They drained their bank accounts and slept under tables with their possessions in their cars. There were several reasons why they would stay in such conditions. Some students were employed full-time by the fellowship and would lose what little income they earned if they left. Others relied on the fellowship's support for business. There was one bright spot. Lancaster had a dog, a little mutt she and her husband cherished. Sadly, mixed-breed dogs weren't a part of Burton's high-society vision. In 1980, Burton ordered his students to either euthanize or rehome any of their dogs that weren't pedigree. Lancaster had a nervous breakdown at the thought of losing her dog. She said, I began to realize how much control the teacher had over anything I had cared about. Lancaster kept her mental anguish to herself as she contemplated suicide. It was either this or continue to suffer in silence. To simply leave the fellowship wasn't an option. 
Remember, it wasn't just a financial investment. It was an emotional one as well. Whenever Burton spoke, he insisted that Armageddon would wipe out the outside world. Lancaster and her husband eventually joined a small group of students who had grown discontent with Burton and with the fellowship. They were each other's confidants, but kept their heads buried in the sand. A strategic move to ensure their survival. Festinger calls this cognitive dissonance, where humans strive for consistency to function and will overlook obvious causes for concern if it protects their routine. According to Festinger, it may even be less painful to tolerate the dissonance than to discard the belief and admit one had been wrong. For Burton's students, cognitive dissonance meant sticking with Burton even after his economic depression prediction failed to materialize. Rather than think Burton was wrong, the students decided they couldn't grasp the angel's motivations because they weren't conscious beings like Burton. Everything would make sense once they were at his level. Lancaster said, I became a master of justification. Yet her discontent bubbled under the surface. What finally made her snap was when she overheard some unsavory rumors about Burton. He had always said that he was celibate and preached for students to remain so until marriage. However, there were accusations of sexual assault between Burton and his male students. The victims were prohibited from seeking help outside the fellowship. Many had descended into alcoholism to cope. The rumors were so widespread, the fellowship had to hold a meeting to address them. At the meeting, Lancaster expressed her concerns, only to be shot down. She was told that her fears existed only in her mind. For Lancaster, the bubble had burst. She and her husband left the fellowship in 1984. With no money and no friends, Lancaster and her husband joined a clinic that helped ex-cult members transition back to civilian life. Lancaster notes that most people who join a cult don't realize they're in one immediately. Cults purposefully target idealists who buy into the concept of the cult, usually equally as ideal. By the time they realize they're in a cult, it's far too late to back out easily. Abstinence before marriage was the longest-running task Burton assigned. Students had to wait six months into the teaching before they could start a relationship. And they would have to wait 12 months after a relationship ended to start another one. Interracial and homosexual relationships were outright banned. Whenever asked about his personal life, Burton maintained he was celibate. Yet starting in the earliest days of the fellowship, Burton kept an entourage of young male students at his side. It was said their presence was to shield Burton from sexual temptation. So when it finally emerged that Burton had slept with his entourage and used long-standing students to poach new victims, it was like a kick to the stomach for many. The recruitment process was methodical. A boy, usually between the ages of 18 and 22, would be summoned by someone in Burton's inner circle. The reason was always the same. Burton wanted to get to know the boy better. The boy agreed to meet in private at a certain time and place. Burton would walk in. He would say nothing. Just a casual glance at the boy as Burton would cross into his private quarters. A moment later, Burton would emerge. He would then ask the boy to join him in his bedroom. Burton would instruct the boy to disrobe. Then Burton would disappear into the bathroom to wash his hands. Finally, Burton would reemerge and badger and coerce the boy into sex. 
According to authors and American spirituality experts Diana Alstead and Joel Kramer, quote, promiscuous gurus utilize their power to create what amounts to a harem for their pleasure, end quote. For these boys, sex with Burton became one more task they were required to do, either participate in the harem or be cast out of the cult to await Armageddon defenseless. After they were done, Burton would schedule more private sessions and would promise the boy privileges in exchange for sex. He loved to dangle fancy vacations abroad as payment. According to Alstead and Kramer, Sexuality with disciples sets up hierarchies of preference where disciples compete for status. There were two examples of this. In the fellowship, Burton personally remained distant from his students as he communicated through his directors. When an invite to meet Burton was extended to a naive male student, it was an appeal to vanity. It meant that Burton thought this student was worthy above the others. Once they realized what these visits meant, many students used the newfound favoritism to their advantage and slept with Burton for the gifts, travel, and other privileges. Thomas Easley was a 21-year-old college dropout when he happened upon a newspaper ad for the fellowship. Easley described his fellow students as nice, normal, friendly folk. So when Easley and his girlfriend were invited to live with Burton, they accepted. But Easley quickly learned he wasn't allowed to have sex with his girlfriend. Burton, however, could demand sex from him any time. Easley was given compensation in return for being party to his own assault. He said, Burton made me his personal secretary and chauffeur. I had to move into his bedroom. On March 4th, 1984, Fellowship executive Samuel Sanders presented a letter to his fellow board members. He begged them to realize that Burton had used his position to abuse young men, and the board should also feel responsible through their tacit omission. Sanders had spoken with many of Burton's victims who suffered mental anguish from their sexual encounters with him. For Sanders, remaining silent on the issue was a sin of omission and commission. However, he also expressed sympathy for Burton. Sanders felt Burton could be rehabilitated with the right amount of love and care. This wasn't the legacy they wanted to pass on to the next generation of students, Sanders cautioned. So he advised that the board approach the situation with stern yet level-headed sensibility. Sanders closed his letter with, quote, If you find in your solitude that fear and or the wish to defend has kept you from hearing what has been said, you lose a very dear friend. You lose yourself." End quote. When Sanders submitted his letter, the board retaliated with a secret vote to excommunicate him. Sanders, however, wouldn't fade away quietly. On June 6, 1984, Sanders filed a $2.5 million lawsuit in the Superior Court of California, County of Yuba. The lawsuit exposed Burton's financial and sexual exploitation of his students. Many students were unaware of the allegations against Burton until the lawsuit. Not only did they believe Burton was celibate for the greater good of the fellowship, they were forbidden to speak negatively against him in any way. That made it hard for rumors to get around. A hundred students left the fellowship thanks to the lawsuit. This included Miles Barth, Burton's close confidant and assumed successor. Barth's departure in 1985 resulted in an additional 250 students exiting the fellowship in 1986. In a letter Barth wrote, quote, 
I judge Burton evil for the callous abuse of his power over people, end quote. And Barth wasn't the only one talking. After Burton expelled him for demanding an apology, Easley wrote in a letter to a friend, I have seen too many young men abused by Burton under the banner of love and enlightenment, end quote. Easley suspected at the time that Burton had abused four to five hundred male students. It was a staggering number that made many remaining fellowship members sick. Burton, however, was more concerned with his burgeoning collection of Chinese furniture than with the expanding list of accusations and lawsuits. He seemed to outright ignore the fact that his cult was slowly imploding. As fellowship lawyer Abraham Goldman requested gag orders for the lawsuit, Burton started to amass his prized collection of antique Chinese furniture. The fellowship reached a settlement with Sanders on July 29, 1988. Due to the gag order, Sanders couldn't reveal the financial agreement he made with the fellowship, but the case wouldn't go to trial. Burton told his students the lawsuit was dropped due to lack of evidence. Burton also assigned a task that prohibited students from discussing the lawsuit with each other. Their blind obedience kept his secrets safe for the next several years. Richard Laurel, also known as Richard Busby, moved to the Oregon House compound with his son Troy in 1977. When Burton offered Richard Busby work as a security guard, Richard accepted, but soon discovered that Burton expected massages from his watchmen. One morning during the requisite massage, Burton forced himself on Richard. Richard felt ashamed and betrayed. He quit the job shortly afterward. He kept his encounter with Burton a secret for years, until he learned something that shocked him to his core. Years later, Richard discovered that his son Troy was also among Burton's victims. We'll follow the fallout of this horrific revelation in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Troy was taught by Richard to honor Burton as a god from the age of seven. On October 10, 1986, Troy officially became a member of the fellowship at the age of 17. In December 1986, Burton began supplying Troy with alcohol at teaching dinners. One night, Burton invited Troy back into his room. Burton told Troy, quote, I promise you, I am an angel in a man's body, end quote. Then he kissed Troy on the forehead and instructed him to just let go. Like his father before him, Troy submitted to Burton, who dipped into the fellowship's funds to pay Troy for his company. Burton later appointed Troy to the role of security guard. 
Troy was initially stationed at the gatehouse until Burton promoted him to the role of personal guard. Troy was reluctant to take the position, yet he felt he couldn't refuse. The proximity gave Troy an uncomfortable insight into Burton's private life. In just one night, he witnessed several men enter Burton's room. The paper-thin walls echoed with the instructions Burton gave these men. Troy developed stomach ulcers from the stress. After the parade of men left, Troy would massage Burton. The massages always led to sex, and Burton habitually neglected to use protection in their encounters. Troy eventually contracted a sexually transmitted disease. In October 1994, Richard wrote a letter to fellow students to expose Burton's abuse of Troy. Retaliation from Burton's inner circle was swift. Richard was excommunicated. To discredit him, the students were told Richard was on psychiatric medical leave. The Busbys took their story to the media. The San Diego Union-Tribune published a two-part article on March 12th and 13th, 1995. More students left the fellowship as a result. There was speculation the mass exodus created a loss of $500,000 in annual dues. The Busbys filed a demand letter through their representative, anti-cult lawyer Ford Green. They sought $5 million from the fellowship. On May 25, 1995, the fellowship filed a suit in Oakland Federal Court. Burton, credited as John Doe, claimed that the Busbys, credited as William and Henry Rowe, issued false claims. Troy wasn't intimidated and filed his lawsuit on April 29, 1996. The Fellowship of Friends retaliated on June 1, 1996. They hired Eugene Ingram, a private investigator and former LAPD officer. Ingram had experience with cults through decades of work with L. Ron Hubbard and the Church of Scientology. Burton and his inner circle had done their homework on several levels. First, Ingram had a history of witness intimidation. He once posed as an active-duty police detective to question a woman about a county sheriff's ties to a prostitution ring. Second, Ingram had personal history with Green. Ingram had written letters to the state bar that accused Green of perjury. When his efforts failed to have Green charged, Ingram contacted Green's friends and acquaintances. Ingram's modus operandi was to visit his targets unannounced and reveal what he knew about them. Ames Gilbert, an ex-student, claimed Ingram had threatened to harm his family should he support Troy's lawsuit. Ingram also harassed Troy's birth mother to pressure Troy into withdrawing the lawsuit. According to Ingram himself, the Church of Scientology paid him $600,000 a year for his time. We can only assume his retainer at the Fellowship of Friends was somewhere in that ballpark. Troy's lawsuit and the high fees Ingram likely commanded were an issue for the fellowship. The significant drop in membership didn't help. Simply put, fewer students meant less money. This may have been the motivation for Burton and his inner circle to sell off their Chinese furniture. On September 21, 1996, Burton's collection of Ming and Qing dynasty chairs and tables were auctioned for a record-breaking $11.2 million at Christie's in New York. Troy's lawsuit came to an end in October 1996, when, like Sanders had in 1988, he settled out of court with the fellowship for an undisclosed amount. But other ex-students would soon challenge the fellowship. 
On May 29, 1997, a former member named Stella Work created a website about abuse within the fellowship. On October 12, 1997, the San Francisco Examiner published an interview with Work about her experience with Burton. In retaliation, the fellowship filed a lawsuit against Work and about a hundred other ex-students. The fellowship claimed libel and defamation. Yet, perhaps aware of the evidence against them, the fellowship seemingly let this lawsuit fall to the wayside. But that didn't stop them from filing more suits. Many lawsuits were served, though none of the cases saw a trial. If the goal of the fellowship was to cause trouble for detractors, it failed. Around December 1997, the fellowship had several crisis meetings. They were low on resources after many settlements and had a collection of Ming furniture that wouldn't sell. Their apparent solution was to sue the company that sold their antique Chinese furniture. Burton faced a different crisis later that year. His prediction that California would fall into the ocean was officially scheduled for April 12, 1998 at 11 in the morning. Burton instructed his students to quit their jobs, sell off their homes, and move to Oregon House if they wanted to survive. One of those students was Kevin Kelly quadriplegic and wheelchair-bound after a driving accident, Kelly had fought hard for independence. He graduated from Yuba College and found work in the Bay Area. Yet Kelly's staunch support of Burton meant giving up everything. Other students took out loans under the assurance Armageddon would happen. Brand new RVs and tractors worth a quarter million dollars popped up on the Oregon House compound in the days before California would crumble. April 12th came and went. California didn't fall. That didn't deter Burton, who changed the date to July 1st, 1998. Burton was so confident that he overturned the task of abstinence before marriage. Members were now told that both hetero and homosexual relationships were okay, so long as they were responsible in their affairs. But by 1999, California was very much above water, no one took this harder than Kelly, who was among the many left penniless and unemployed after quitting his job. Kelly committed suicide a year later. Burton forbid his students to hold a funeral service for Kelly. He called him weak. As for Burton's string of failed prophecies, he left town on a brief sabbatical. He reportedly said, Higher forces humiliate me. The fellowship entered the new millennium at a low point. Burton decided to take a more direct approach. All meetings, dinners, receptions, and teas Burton hosted were now mandatory events, which now exceeded 400 in a single year. More than 100 of those events were standard meetings, but 60 to 70 were special dinners, 25 to 30 were regular lunches and dinners, and 15 to 20 were tea parties. Burton demanded undivided attention as he outlawed chewing and conversation. Oftentimes, food was served and taken away untouched. Burton's students paid for everything, of course. Most events were held at Oregon House. Yet for an increased price, some students paid cash up front to host an event at home. This custom resulted in the voucher system. The voucher system was yet another way Burton exploited his students, many of whom were bankrupt. The fellowship needed an infinite number of students to participate and perform manual labor. A student could earn half a voucher for four hours of landscaping, cooking, or washing dishes. 
a full voucher could only be earned through performing all three errands. Earning one voucher meant a student could attend an event. However, they would have to stand on one leg. Two vouchers meant they could use two legs. Three or four vouchers meant they could sit in a chair. Meanwhile, the fellowship concentrated on recruiting students overseas, mainly from Russia. Members of the inner circle were specifically told to look for handsome young men who would sexually appease Burton. If Burton liked a student, he would pay to relocate the student to California. These foreign students were impoverished and initially had no idea they were chosen to perform sexual favors for Burton. They spoke very little English and had religious visas that Burton paid for. Trapped in the United States with no way to return home, they became sex slaves to survive. As the foreign students were kept stateside with citizenship marriages, visas, and green cards, some used Burton's proclivities to advance through the ranks. Eventually, the fellowship's inner circle was comprised of these greedy enablers as the old guards were forced out. The new inner circle used the vouchers to abuse students sexually and financially. Whenever Burton went out of town, members of his inner circle took students into his master bedroom. A black market emerged that traded vouchers for $150. The quest for vouchers meant a high volume of attendance for every event, with few chairs to spare. Yet, cash was still king within the fellowship. Only cash payers were guaranteed seats. The rest were forced to stand, often on one leg, for hours at a time. Students abroad weren't absolved from the financial abuse. Burton had traveling teachers visit centers worldwide to update students on the fellowship's principles, which focused on fundraising. Burton held auctions four times a year. Each auction had a target goal of $150,000. Of the $150,000 goal, students abroad were responsible for 7%, or $10,000 while the Oregon House students had to contribute the other 93%. The lofty goal was meant to motivate students into improving the fellowship. In exchange, centers worldwide received updated teaching materials. Eventually, individual donation packages were created for every center. The nuclear holocaust Burton had hyped since the fellowship's early days was around the corner. Countless students had worked for decades to build the Ark. 2006 would at last be the moment of triumph for the fellowship. But 2006 came and went. Once again, humanity was still standing. And once again, Burton was humiliated. Burton reportedly advised his inner circle to cease all mention of Armageddon. Disillusioned and restless, students in the United States went in search of a real school of enlightenment. They read the works of Hindu guru Nisargdatta Maharaj, learned of Advaita Buddhism, and attended the meetings of spiritual teachers Adyashanti, John Wheeler, and Tony Parsons. These teachers were approachable, didn't demand money, and weren't corrupt fearmongers. The trend didn't go unnoticed. Spies were sent to Advaita meetings to report any fellowship students in attendance. The students caught by Burton spies were told to stop seeing the Buddhist teachers or leave the fellowship. Many chose to leave. Throughout this time, the ex-students created a blog to share their stories about the fellowship. On March 1st, 2007, all active students in the fellowship were emailed a link to this blog. 
For the first time since the fellowship's inception, students and ex-students could reach across the aisle to speak to one another. The fellowship lost an estimated 650 members in 2007. It seemed that the fellowship was on track to shutting down for good. But in 2008, an unprecedented event would change the world. Burton was likely the only person alive happy about the 2008 financial crisis. One of his predictions had come through, and he was primed to take advantage of that. Burton said, quote, We will take each day as it comes, and each day the school and homes will make preparations. End quote. He joined the bandwagon of prophets who believed the world would end on December 21st, 2012. When this didn't happen, Burton went back to the drawing board. California was supposed to fall into the ocean on October 21st, 2018. But despite the fact that it didn't happen, membership within the fellowship still stands at an estimated 1,500 students, with a growth rate of about four students per year since 1979. As far as we can tell, Burton continues to abuse his students, who suffer in silence at the fear of excommunication. We can presume that soon, another date for Armageddon will be announced, and his students will once again bankrupt themselves in anticipation of an end that never seems to come. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy Cults, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Simone Fornilier and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 